Our God in heaven, we now come before you and we turn our attention to your word because this book that you've given to us has words of life, has words of hope, it has words that introduce us to you, it has words that tell us who we are and, and about our sin. It sheds light where sometimes we don't want light shed. It opens closets where we've kept some, some skeletons. And Father, it is our prayer, it is our desire that, that we would turn all over to you that we would walk by Your Spirit. And so as we come to a passage today that, that steps on our toes some and it, it tells us about sin and, and it um, may convict, I pray that, that You would soften our hearts. I pray that Your Spirit would, would shed light where that light needs to be shed. Particularly as we come before You and we celebrate in communion and we give thanks for the, Your Son who died on the cross. I, I pray that we would be sensitive to the very sins that He died for. And Lord, might You use Your Word to transform our lives so that as we see in this passage that we're looking at this next week, that we would be transformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we would look more like Him and be imitators of our, our, our Creator. And so please guide us and teach us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Dave, will you bring that glass of water for me? Well, I have a, a serious question I'd like to start off with this morning. Thank you very much. Um, how many of you like bugs? I've got three, four, five. Okay, we've got a few, couple future entomologists here. And uh, now I'm not talking about eating bugs, but enjoy bugs, watching them, observing them, uh, checking them out. I've got, I got a few. You know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan um, but I, I appreciate the, the intricacies of the bug world and what God has created. And, and so sometimes I enjoy just observing bugs. They're fun to watch sometimes. And, and one of my favorite varieties is the ant. Uh, in fact, the Bible tell, commands us, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways. And, and so it's biblical for us to watch bugs, particularly ants. And so I used to have an ant farm and, and used to love just watching them work, watching them build things together. Uh, it, it's fascinating just to see some of these creatures that God has made. However, there is one variety of ant that, that I absolutely abhor. I consider it my mortal enemy in this life. And that is the Texas fire ant. How many of you here, second serious question, and if you've been bit before like Russ has, you know how serious of a question this is. How many of you have been bit by a fire ant before? Oh, more than I thought. There's, there's a good dozen, dozen or two of you. Um, brutal. Brutal. The, the fire that, that goes up your legs and the, the itching that ensues for three to nine weeks, the scars that it leaves. And these fire ants, are, they're horrible, horrible creatures. And in my mind, the only question that needs to be asked when it comes to fire ants is not how do I get rid of them or, or, or how do I avoid them, but how do I kill them? How do I absolutely abolish and destroy these horrible monsters that have declared war on my family? And so when we lived in Texas, our kids would go back in the backyard, I'd mow the lawn, and you know, every time there, there were these fire ants and they would, they would get us. And it seems like they, they acted differently depending on who they were attacking. I don't know if it was the blood type or you know, whether we were just bitter or sweet. Something about each one of us, they, they attacked differently. With me, they always got between the webs of my toes and my fingers if my hands got too close. Uh, yeah, horrible. Uh, with Abby... They, they would um, 
they would wait. And, and they would crawl all the way up to her neck and they would be inside jeans and shirts. And then they would send out a signal of some kind, some pheromone, and simultaneously they would all attack at one time. And so all over, she would start getting bit. And it was horrible. It was excruciating. These creatures, these monsters, had declared war on my family. And, and in my mind, the only thing question that need to be asked was, how, how do I get rid of them? And so, so I tried fire. We had a propane tank with a, a, a blowtorch on it or a, a, a flamethrower, really. And I would try burning them out of their holes. Didn't work. We would try poison. I tried boiling water down into their, their, their colony. That didn't work. And so time, it just killed my grass, and whatever I did. And so, time after time again, I, I tried getting rid of these horrible creatures that had infested my backyard as they do most yards in Texas. And then I, I heard a fact about fire ants that, that made me think a little bit. And that was that, that each anthill is its own separate colony. Each anthill, if a fire ant wanders over from a different anthill, they will, they'll attack it and they'll kill it. And so that got me thinking a little bit. Uh-huh, you got it right. And so I went out there and I grabbed a shovel and I started stirring those anthills up. And I had four in my backyard usually each year. And I started putting that shovel into that ant hole. And they would come up to the top and they'd be mad. And, and they would cover the ground. And so I would, I would dig up a, a, a couple couple buckets of, of, of dirt and put it off to the side. I'd go to the second ant hole. I'd dig those up, get them really mad. The third ant hole, the fourth ant hole. I'd come back to the first. And you guessed it, there's an entire pile of fire ants everywhere and I would take that mound of dirt and I would transfer it and just plop it right onto the second ant hole and the second to the third and the third to the fourth and back to the first and sure enough once a year we would have our annual ant war and we would go out there and you could actually watch it and there would be a, an area of three to four square feet and the ants would cover the surface of the earth you could not see a blade of grass in that entire area because there were millions of ants that had come up for battle and it was brutal they would they would just slaughter each other and if you got down close enough i mean you could just see the it i can't describe what happened here that we have children um and so it became the highlight of our year, watching the ant war and getting rid of these horrible beasts that were my mortal enemy on this earth. And sure enough, we'd do that once a year and we'd be good for the rest of the season. I'd go mow the lawn, the kids could go run in the sprinklers, and we were typically pretty ant-free until the next season. Um, when we moved here to Iowa, my, my kids started panicking. Anna came to me this morning and said, Dad, there's ants in the kitchen. Uh, first time this year, which is great. I said, are you scared? She's like, no, I'm okay now. Um, I'm paraphrasing, she didn't quite say it like that, but when we first moved here, there was this fear that fire ants are back. They're different here in Iowa. So if they ever move, well, the reason I share this with you is we come to Colossians, and that's the kind of picture that, that we find regarding sin. There's, there's, not, there's not this question of, of how, how do I get around sin, but, but how do I destroy it? You see, in the first half of Colossians, we've looked at the theology of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 3, we're going to move into really the application of it all. We've seen the theology of how great Jesus is, that He's greater than all else. And if Jesus is greater than, and if He is superior to all things, then now you and I need to truly live with a greater purpose. My life 
is now a banner that is to be lived out for the entire world that points people to Jesus. We are here to share the Gospel with people, to serve one another, to minister to one another. And for this brief time, you and I have the opportunity to point people to our Savior and take as many people to heaven with us so that they can experience the joy and the glory of the other side of eternity. And so we started this chapter with a a big word, a huge word, and that's the word if. And, and, And it's not... It's not that um, the word if, uh, as in, eh, it might happen if. It's not the word if, as in, just hypothetically, let's consider this, it could happen, but probably not. But, but this is an if that says, you were raised with Jesus, and, and it's not an if maybe, if probably, or an if hypothetically. It is an if you've been raised with Jesus, and you have, so this needs to be what happens now. If you were raised with Jesus and if your faith is in Him and, in, and, and He has redeemed you, then this is how you live as a result of what He has accomplished for you. In chapter 3, he moves forward with an assumption that, you've, that you believe that Jesus is greater than your sin. That Jesus is greater than death. Jesus is greater than and by God's grace through faith, you have been granted eternal life and a greater purpose. And so you are no longer who you used to be. You are no longer who you once were in the past. You are secure in the present because your life is not hidden in what you can do for God. It's not hidden in in how you can accomplish great things on His behalf or how you can prove yourself to Him or be good enough. Your life is hidden in Him, in Christ with God. And so your salvation is secure in the present. And your future is just as sure as the past and just as sure as the present because Jesus is going to appear and when He does, we will appear with Him in glory. Because you've been infused with a purpose-filled life as a follower of Jesus, you now have a calling to live for Him today. It's a reality with past, present, and future reasons for our obedience in the now. And because we serve a superior God, Jesus Christ, one who is preeminent, one who is first in all things, therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, you live with this greater purpose. And my friends, we cannot miss that in our walk with Him. And so now in chapter 3, we're going to start fleshing that out. How how do I live out this purpose on a day-to-day basis in my walk with Jesus? And and over this next few weeks, Paul's going to give us a few ideas of what that looks like. And we're going to start today by just looking at verses 5-7. through I was going to try to get through verse 11 today, but there's just so much here that I felt we need to deal with in verse 5 that we're going to break this, this section up into two parts. Read with me verses 5-7 through seven as he says this. He says, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them." Now, now again, understand what he's saying. Before Christ, you were spiritually dead. But you were alive to sin. You were alive to the flesh. That, that is who you served. And, and the flesh, also called the old self in Scripture, it's the willing, 
instruments of sin. And, and before Christ, you served it. It was your king. It was your master. And so even when you were doing good deeds and trying to be a good person, it was done in a way that it still served the old self. Whether it was in order to build your pride or to accomplish things according to your purpose, it wasn't for God's glory and for His good by His power. And so it was all done in the service of the old self, the flesh. And even when we performed good deeds and, and you may have lived in a way that comparably you were decent compared to other spiritually dead sinners, none of it was being done by the power of God or for His glory because you were dead. I was dead in my relationship to Him. You lived to serve yourself and again, by your own power. But a miracle happened and each one of you who have trusted Jesus Christ, and a miracle will happen for those of you who haven't yet come to Him, but that place your faith in Him and Him alone. At that moment of salvation, when you place your faith in Him rather than in yourself, a miracle takes place and you become alive to God. You actually receive spiritual life and a relationship that was absolutely dead before, as dead as the people that are lying next door in the cemetery. Your relationship with Him was as dead and you were unable to save yourself as much as they are unable to come back to life. And so you became alive to God. You received spiritual life and God's Spirit indwelt you and you now no longer have to be controlled by your sin nature that once had mas was a master over you. Being dead to sin means that you have died to the penalty of sin. In the future, we will be free from the presence of sin altogether. Won't that be glorious when you don't have to struggle day to day with, with the reality of sin in your life? But also, it means that you have been freed from the power of sin today. The pre its presence is still a very real enemy, but the power of sin no longer holds sway over your life. And that means that every day in this struggle, we have the power to obey God because He is the one that's living in you but it means that daily we put it to death. In the here and the now, there's this real struggle that we live with. And so, I must kill it. It's a violent passage that we deal with today. When it comes to sin, God says, I expect you to deal with sin in your life violently. It is to be your mortal enemy. It is to be something that you pursue and say, I will not tolerate this in any way whatsoever. Fire ants. There's only one question. How do I kill them? How successful would I have been in my life and in my war with this, this enemy if I just decided that it wasn't, it wasn't worth an all-out war with them? That, that um, if, if I decided that it was a losing battle and therefore I just need to live life tolerating these fire ants. My, my children just have to change their lifestyle. They, they can't go outside. They just need to play video games their entire day. They would have loved that, right? If I decided that I'm just not going to win anyway, so I'll give in to the enemy, it would have changed a lot of things. And perhaps you're tempted when it comes to sin. You're tempted to tolerate certain colonies or varieties of the very thing that Christ died for. You're tempted into the lie that it won. And therefore, therefore you, um, your walk with Jesus is just going to have to be adjusted in order to allow that sin in your life. Perhaps you're tempted when it comes to sin. And Colossians, it shouts out and says, no, Jesus is greater than. He is greater than all things. And He is greater than your sin. 
He is greater, and you have the Holy Spirit empowering you to remove those strongholds. And there's this daily battle against your old master who keeps shouting out, and he keeps saying, hey, over here, don't you remember how fun this was? Don't you remember how, how, how this, this was so wonderful and it satisfied those desires in your life? And God says, Jesus is greater than that. And verse 5 starts out with a command that God gives to you. And it's a command that has to be lived out daily. And again, it's not a question of should I put to death my sinful tendencies? It's not when should I put to death that which is in me that causes me to sin, but now kill it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also spoke in, in violent terms like this. He says, look, if you... If, it's not an issue of, of just committing adultery. If you think thoughts, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. And then you remember what he says after that? If, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, do what with it? Pluck it out. Gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, he's speaking hyperbolically, okay? He's, don't, I don't want to come back next week and find one-eyed people with one... That's not what he's saying. The point is, sin has to be dealt with violently in your life. It hurts. And it's painful when we say no. Because the flesh is crying out and the old master says, no, I want this. And Jesus says, you have to do this in a way that sometimes it is going to be painful to get rid of those things that you've grown to love in your life. Those things from your old life that, that, were, that called to you and, and that you served. Now in particular, God deals with sexual sin and the sexual sin here in this passage. And see, throughout human history, one of the most prolific areas of sin that has been celebrated and embraced is sin that is sexual in nature. Now, now I want us to understand before we begin and, and look at the passage the self and some of the details here, understand that, that, that sex was created by God. God created us as sexual beings with desires and the fulfillment of those desires within the parameters that God gave to us. And he said, this is good. Um, And so let's not be ashamed of the beauty of sex. The beauty of this relationship between a man and a woman within the protection of marriage is blessed by God. It's blessed by God in Scripture. He's devoted an entire book of the Bible to this relationship. Song of Solomon, read it sometime and just see some of the things that he says there. It's a pretty explicit love story in places. But it knows when to pull the curtain and when to keep things modest and when to say, we're going to shut the door now and let this couple in Song of Solomon enjoy that relationship. God blesses that relationship. And anything, anything within the boundary of what God says is fine for this couple, this man and this woman, it should... It should not bring shame. And so, as we deal with a passage in which God says this is sin and this is to be killed in your life, don't mistake that and think that He's saying that sex altogether is something that's bad because He created it and He intended for it to be enjoyed within the confines of of the relationship that He said this is where it should be experienced the most. The best. And where it will bring ultimate fulfillment in the way that He intended it to. But when our old nature is given the reins to pursue those desires in its way, it will always go outside the bounds of God's design and it will do whatever it can to do 
in order to gratify what it lusts after, even if it means pursuing those things in a way that, that hides it from other people. We f- still feel that shame of, of, of disobeying God's law because we have consciences that He's put within us. And, and we know what culture says. And we know what people say. And we know what, what, uh, what, how others are going to criticize. And so sometimes the, 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 the flesh may pursue those lustful desires, but it does so in a way that it hides the shame that it has created from others. And God's solution for sexual sin in particular, though, is to kill it. He gives you the power to walk in obedience, but we have to make a personal choice on a daily basis to destroy anything that falls outside of God's intentions for sex in your life. When He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, He's recognizing that you must take radical action towards sin. And specifically, our text presents us with five sins, five words that deal with sexual sin that you have to approach as your mortal enemy. First, he says, put to death sexual immorality. The word is porneia. Uh, It's the word that we get porn from. Uh, Pornography just means immoral literature, immoral writings. Grapho means writings in Greek, and so pornography is sexual immoral writing, sexual immoral literature. Porneia, sexual immorality, quite simply is referring to any form of illicit sex. And you see, like American culture, when, when Paul wrote these words and Timothy wrote these words to the church in Colossae, you know, they lived in a culture that, that celebrated sexual relationship well outside the bounds of the marriage relationship. In fact, in Roman culture, marriage was not for enjoying sex. In Roman culture, that was a foreign concept. If you wanted to enjoy a sexual relationship, you went outside marriage, you, you, usually they would find a concubine or, or prostitutes or go up to the temple where they would worship their gods and incorporate that into their life. And, and marriage was for making children. In the Roman culture, if you wanted children, then, then you got married and that's where that happened. But, but gratifying the sexual lusts was something that happened elsewhere. And so this was groundbreaking when it came to to the culture that the Colossians lived in. And and Paul says to them, put to death sexual immorality. And like that Roman culture, American culture today, it has an attitude towards sexual sin. And God says to us, He tells us, I demand a radical removal of of sexual behavior that misses the mark of what I have declared to be the best for you. Again, I want us to understand that when it comes to this sexual relationship and getting rid of areas in our lives where God says this is wrong, it's not that God's sitting up there going, how can I make this person's life really miserable? How can I make this as painful as possible? He recognizes the pain that comes with, with destroying sin in our lives, but it's not that God's sitting there going, how can I just make things miserable for these people? God says, I want what's best for you. I I want what's absolutely best in your life. I know how I created you. I know how I made you. And so I'm going to give you instruction for life so that you don't have to go around figuring it out and going, boy, I hope I get this right. He says, I'm going to be really specific and I'm going to tell you what this looks like. And because I know how you work and I know how relationships work, I, I want you to experience my best for you. And so if you do it within these parameters... You will be fulfilled as you serve me and walk with me and do so in a way that you can enjoy life as I intended for you to. And I thought about expounding on this, this word sexual immorality. 
But in the last few moments, your, your own conscience and my own conscience has probably done a lot better job of detailing what kinds of porneia needs to be obliterated in your life without me telling you all the specific different kinds. I, I could expound on premarital sex, homosexual sex, extramarital sex, but it comes down to the truth that each form is sin. And God, God gives you one primary solution to sexual immorality in your life. Absolute extermination. Kill it. If you are in a sexual relationship with anyone other than your husband or wife, then you must make a conscious decision, sometimes every single day, to destroy that relationship. To destroy that sin. You must take radical action against any and every form of immorality in your life. You may be living with somebody. And it might cost you. I mean, financially, that's hard. Jesus said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. It's radical. It's painful. It will have consequences in your life, but it is more important for you to walk with Me and obey Me in this area than for you to consider the financial ramifications of the, and the value that it brings to you in that way. You probably have incredible feelings for the person. You may have to quit your job to remove yourself from that relationship. It may have to be that drastic. Your flesh will make every excuse in the world to justify why your sexual immorality is okay. Your old nature, it's going to cry out to you. It does that. When there is something in your life that is sexually immoral, the flesh says, this is, it's okay, really. God, God understands what you're going through. He understands that you're lonely. Certainly God knows how much you desire intimacy. I mean, sure, He created you with it, so sure, He gets it. Your flesh cries out and says, certainly, God wouldn't want you to hurt the other person's feelings. I mean, break off the relationship because it's wrong. Certainly, God wouldn't want me to cause pain in that person's life. God gives you one solution. Remove the sin from your life along with every opportunity to return to it put to death sexual immorality. Secondly, he says put to death impurity. It's a more generic word, but it, it, demonstrates, it demonstrates that sexual sin goes far beyond just carrying out physical acts. Uh, Jesus shocked the world when He said, you've, you've heard what it said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so sexual sin, it goes beyond the things that you carry out. It goes beyond the act. Impurity includes what we look at with our eyes and it includes what you think in your mind. God says, kill it. It's violent. It's a violent solution to sin. But God says, this is your mortal enemy. How many of you would go into battle? What was it our, our Bible, in our Bible study? just came to my mind. In Bible study, we were, we were studying um, the pursuit of holiness. And it's talking about how many, how many soldiers would go off to war. And do you remember how it said that? Not to, yeah. yeah. How, how, many, how many soldiers go off to war just trying to figure out how well I just avoid being hit rather than how well I actually... Um, and sometimes we pursue sin in the same way of, well, how can I go into this and still enjoy it, but just not suffer the consequences of it? I'm massacring the passage. I shouldn't have even brought it up, but it just came to my mind. You know, God says, kill it. 
destroy it. Radical action may mean that you need to approach a Christian friend and say, I need some help. Some of you have a problem with pornography. And your flesh says, this is secret. This is just... You can do this on your own. And to go to somebody else and say, I need help with this sin issue... That's radical. That's, you would rather chop off your hand than tell somebody else, I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with looking at pictures that are wrong and immoral. There, there are programs out there that, that are filled with grace, filled with opportunities that you and a friend can come together and say, let's help one another here. I have a good friend that, um, that has asked me, he emails me, I get an email once a week, and I get pictures of, of any questionable content that goes across his computer screen. And it's all fuzzed out, so I can't see what's going on, but enough that I can see. And I can go to my friend and say, hey, what's going on here? Um, that may be what you need. Uh, covenant eyes, if you're looking for something. Covenant eyes. It may cost you. You have to get a prescription. A, a prescription? A subscription. Thank you. Wow. Latin is so difficult. You may need to invest in a software program like Covenant Eyes, but it is worth it so that someone else has the permission to see, not in detail, just fuzz out pictures, but enough for you to say, hey, can tell you're on a website that you shouldn't be on. And I can go to somebody and say, I need your accountability. I need, I need help. And in a way that is filled with grace and filled with compassion for one another. But in a way that we say, I'm going to kill this sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, Putting impurity to death, it calls for radical actions. Perhaps it's a video game you play. I, I'm, not, I'm not oblivious to the fact that a lot of the video games that, that some of us play in this life, they are filled with content that the Christian life is not to be even touching. Perhaps it's a video game you play. Gouging out your metaphorical eye may mean that you literally have to just delete your favorite game that you've devoted time to. Some of us are tolerating absolute filth coming into our homes through the movies that we're watching. And my friends, if you can't control the impurity that you subject your family to, then radical putting to death action, it may mean that you need to get rid of the service that pumps that impurity into your home and into the minds of your children. And we justify it and say, ah, it's just Netflix, it's just Amazon, it's just HBO Max, it's just this, it's... But, but if you're allowing things to come to your home and you or your family are not controlling it, radical action has to be taking place and you have to kill it. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about causing harm to another individual, okay? So don't, don't go killing somebody because they're causing you to stumble. That's not. But you may need to delete something that you've loved that brings you joy and, 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 and fun and happiness in life. Maybe your favorite go-to form of entertainment. And killing the sin may mean that you have to go discover a new hobby altogether. Number three, put to death passion. Here in Colossians, it's referring to shameful passion. Uh, this does not mean that a wife and her husband may not enjoy a passionate embrace or many impassionate embraces. Scripture makes it clear that there's great freedom of expression and intimate flirtation that should be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. Again, just read Song of Solomon. But what, what Colossians is telling us is that we need to put to death dishonorable sexual behavior. And the emphasis seems to be on, on shameful passion that leads to physical excess. And you know, again, we live in a world that just, it just tolerates sexual sin. 
It celebrates sexual sin. It says this is normal. And I think that one of the areas that this shameful passion that's being described here, that's practiced most often, is in, in the workplace and in the classroom. There, there are many sexual sins that even our coworkers they blush from and say, yeah, that happens behind closed doors. This happens in private. But, but many of us in our workplaces that we go to, in, our school, in the schoolroom, see shameful passion practiced out in the open and celebrated. It probably includes harassment, and thankfully our world is addressing that in some ways. There are a lot of good things that the Me Too movement did. Um, sexual harassment is wrong, and I think this passion that's being described here includes that thing. But I think it goes beyond that to a lot of the, the, the office type of flirtation that the world just accepts as normal. It's the, it's the, the meetings where, a person, where your leg touches the other person's leg underneath and, and you linger. And you allow something that, that's not sexually explicit and something that shouldn't be happening in the bedroom, but it shouldn't be happening under the table either. It, it's the relationships. It's the flirting. It's the, uh, you know, a good guideline here might be that if you would be embarrassed about a physical act if your spouse was watching you with your coworker, with your classmate, then you've probably moved into a territory of shameful passion. Paul gave Timothy some really good advice when he's talking about how to relate to different people of different ages and genders. And Paul said in, in 1 Timothy, he said, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You see, if I'm engaging behavior with someone that would be shameful for me to participate with my sister in, then I may be moving into something of shameful passion. It's something that demands radical removal in my life. Number four, put to death evil desire. You know, there's, there's a fine line between passion and evil desire. I, I think Pastor John MacArthur stated it really well when he said that perhaps the difference between the two terms is that passion is the physical and evil desire is the mental side of the same vice. God demands that we guard not only the behavior that we display and that we commit, we must guard not only the way that our eyes fall on another human being, but we must also guard the very thoughts in our minds. This is probably one of the greatest struggles for many of us because, we, because it remains so secret. It remains hidden. Who will know what happens in your mind? Because it's considered less, far less shameful. And so it becomes much more tolerated. But you know the things that your own mind dwells on. So how do you put to death evil desire? And once again, I, I think this is greatly dependent on what you feed your soul. It's greatly dependent on what you put in. If you're watching the vast majority of media that's being produced in the world today, then you are feeding the beast and the desires that it arouses. I was on YouTube watching a few favorite videos and some subscriptions that I have, and I noticed they introduced something new this last month, or maybe it's been there a while and I'm just old. And there's What's it called now? Um, shorts? And there's all kinds of stuff on there. And it's like, where did this come from? It's like just people posting 30-second clips. And, and, and they're doing it away. Let's get everybody's attention. And how do they gain attention? Through a quick short. We try to make it inappropriate. Try to create evil desires. And, and so it, it's all over the place. James 1.14-15 says, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
You see, there's a progression that Scripture talks about. A progression of sin that God tells us and He says, I, I think... Um, I think that this progression, it, it also begins when we feed our desires with ungodly and very sexual, sensual material. Kent Hughes wrote, Personally, I can think of no other array of sins more prominent in our society and more in need of being put away. Daily living subjects the average American to a sea of sensuality. It is conceivable that on a given evening of watching TV, one may see more sensual sights than your great-grandparents did in their entire lifetime. On one evening. He goes on and says, the magazine ads for certain brands of blue jeans defy adequate description in polite company. And the TV ads for perfume promote a mystical eroticism. And then he goes on to talking about self-delusion that many Christians are living under as they progressively just desensitize themselves. And if you're going to obey God and put evil desire to death, then some of you need to delete some of those apps off of your phone that you're feeding a, a steady diet of, of lustful images. And again, I'm not talking just about pornography. You need to obliterate that in your life. Get rid of it completely. You need to do whatever it, it takes, as painful as it is, and get rid of that. But, but it goes beyond pornography to Snapchat, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all of them are finding new ways to pound material into your mind that engages your mind in evil desire. And if you're struggling with it, it's just not worth it. Get rid of it. You don't need that app. You don't need your phone. Do what Craig does. Get a flip phone. You still got your flip phone or you, you've graduated, haven't you? <laughs> We've moved beyond this, the flip phone. My goodness. <laughs> Brian's telling us it's called a smartphone. Is that what you said? Okay. Go to a flip phone if you have to. If you need the phone itself. Radical action. Job uttered the words, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Solomon wrote, Can, I, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? My friends, a lot of us are just playing with coals. And we're juggling it. HBO Max, YouTube, movies, literature, books that you're reading. And I'll just skip that part this time. Well, didn't. Whoops. And we're juggling it in our lives. And God says radical action hence needs to take place. You need to kill it. Finally, he says, put to death covetousness. To covet, it not only means to desire to have more or to desire what belongs to someone else for yourself, but it also includes the concept of desire, desiring something that I shouldn't have. It's significant that this is included in a list of sexual sins. And Paul goes on to note that, that covetousness is idolatry. You see, all around the world, idolatry and sexual immorality are, are married together so often. They, they feed off of each other. Idolatry, it, it refers to putting something in God's place, and that is what happens when sexual, with sexual sin. All these first four sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, involve a desire for something that does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. And all these lead to a place where we have chosen to worship something different than Jesus Christ. 
and, and this, this sexual immorality, it becomes an idol. It becomes something that I serve. And Jesus commanded us, God commanded us, I want you to, to demolish the idols. Idols have to be obliterated in your life and, and, and this sin is the same way. It has to be demolished, destroyed. Any barrier that leads us to worship something other than Jesus Christ must be removed. So again, my intention was to get through verse 11 this morning. So if you want to, we can skip potluck and keep on going for another... We'll come back next week. Decided that we need to slow down a little bit because the world that we are bombarded with constantly puts you in battle with this kind of covetousness that's described here in our passage today. Verses 6 and 7 go on to remind us that God's wrath is going to one day be unleashed on the world. These sins have pervaded human history. They permeate the world of the 21st century. It's just it's accelerating exponentially. And God says, and He makes it clear in Scripture, that there's going to come a point where He says, I'm giving every opportunity for people to repent of their sin and come to Me. But there's going to come a point where I'm going to unleash My wrath on this world. And it is this type of sin that God says. It's not just sexual sin. It's all sin. But this, this in particular, He notes that because of the nature of, of how it works in our lives. And God says it's because of sin like this that His wrath is going to be poured out on the world. But that's not the case for you. It is not the case for you who are in Christ. For you who are in Christ, the wrath of God has already been propitiated. The sacrifice of Jesus has satisfied God's wrath toward your sin. And when Jesus said it is finished, He was finished. You you did once live in these sins. You walked in these sins. It was your life. You served the flesh whatever the sin may have been. But it is no longer so. We struggle with sin. It's still present and our old Master still calls to us and we're not quite free from the presence of sin altogether. But you no longer walk in sin. Rather, you died to it and your walk is in Christ. Now I understand, this this is a violent passage. Jesus spoke violently about sin when He said, pluck it out, cut it off. My behavior towards fire ants, my mortal enemy in that far off land of Texas. It was a radical solution to a great problem death, destruction to millions of beings because they had declared war on my family. They had declared war on me every time I tried to mow my lawn. They declared war on my children every time they went to play on the, in the sprinklers. In this passage, Colossians introduces us to life lived with a greater purpose by demonstrating this violent first step towards this kind of sin. Colossians 3.5, it shows us radical solutions to a great problem. And God calls for death and destruction to sexual sin. He commands you to put sin to death. Just as He did in Matthew chapter 5. Remember Joseph? When he was confronted with sexual sin, was his response when he was tempted? He ran. God says, run from it. I mean, remember how he ran? He had somebody holding on his cloak. It put him in an awkward situation, didn't he? He ran away naked. But he ran. 
He said, at whatever cost, I'm going to get away from this temptation. I'm not going to submit to this. And he went to prison because of it. Sometimes it costs. God's solution to sexual sin is painful. But God, but the command is clear. Put it to death. Kill it. Completely obliterate what is immoral. You and I must die on purpose to our sin. But oh my friend, the reward that comes with it. The blessing of a walk with Him and that relationship with Him. God knows how He made you. He's not trying to just destroy all the fun in your life and, and, and to do it in a way that just he wants to, you know, how can, I, how can I make this person's life miserable for the next few years? He wants you to experience life to the best. He wants you to experience the joy that He intends for you. And no, it's not easy. And sometimes this kind of radical agenda that He has for you, it is painful. And it's like tearing it apart. But the great glory that you and I will share when Jesus appears and the joy that you will experience as you walk with Him in this life is incomparable. So my friend, let nothing ensnare you from experiencing the great joy that is before us. And may we live in this hour as if the One that we worship were to come back today. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for giving us passages like this. Passages that aren't easy. They make us uncomfortable. It convicts us of things that have gone in our mind this week. Things that we've looked at. Things that we've done. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that, that You would that You would empower them to do the hard thing. To gouge out. To cut off to obliterate and kill that which is sin. May our love for You be greater than the things that bring us harm and destruction. For Your glory. For Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come forward this morning as we celebrate in communion with one another. This is one of the things that Jesus commanded us to do. He gave it to us 2,000 years ago. Please be seated. He gave this to us 2,000 years ago and He says, remember Me. I want you to do this and remember Me. It's a time for us to give thanks. It's a time for us to say, Jesus died for Me. He took My place. The sin that I served in My old nature It deserved God's wrath. It put me at war with God. But out of God's great love for you and His great love for me, the Scripture tells us that He sent His own Son and Jesus Christ died. He died on a cross. And when He did so, it wasn't just a physical death that was excruciating. It wasn't just a torment that He went through through Roman torture. Worse than all of that was that for the first time in all of eternity, the relationship between the Father and the Son was ripped in half. And God the Father, who Jesus had experienced a, an eternity of a, the most perfect relationship that you can imagine in life, accelerated by eternity, God the Father turned His back on His Son. And He poured His wrath on Jesus. All of the hell 
that all of us deserve for all of eternity was experienced by the Son on the cross. And nothing was more painful, more excruciating than what happened to Him and the Father in that moment. And so when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're doing so to remember what Jesus did for us and to give Him thanks for the incredible sacrifice that He made. If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we don't require you to be a member. We're grateful for those that joined our church and are members of our church. But you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular tender. If you're just visiting us today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate with us. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're hearing all this stuff about old self, new self, Jesus, and grace, and, and a relationship with Him, and going, wow, this is really intense stuff. But you haven't chosen to follow Him. I would ask that you to refrain from partaking these elements and saying, I'm, I'm thanking God for something that you haven't yet experienced, and instead that you would receive Jesus, receive the forgiveness that He offers to you today, right where you're sitting, just by saying, I believe. By deciding, I believe and I, I am trusting Jesus to forgive me. I'm giving my eternity to Him. I'm trusting my eternity in His hands and what He did on the cross because I know that I can't do it because He's greater than my sin. He is greater than anything that I can do to accomplish what I need. And if you're here today and there's sin in your life, perhaps something that we address today, these next few moments are an opportunity to confess sin. He commands us and says, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to go grovel somewhere. You don't have to go in the back closet and beat yourself and flog yourself and, and, and make yourself really suffer for your sin. What He commands of you and what He requires of you is to say, God, I agree, this is wrong. And turn from it right now. And, and so I would encourage you as the Spirit has shed light on sin in your life, confess that to Him. Agree with Him that it's wrong and that forgiveness is made. That relationship is restored that was broken. I've asked uh, Doug Hinkle if he would offer a prayer of thanks before we pass the elements. So, Doug, would you just give God thanks for the bread? Oh, Lord and mighty King, we come to you at this time, and we acknowledge that you are sovereign and you are holy, and you created us to be like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. At this time, we just pray for the bread as it reflects his broken body, as uh, our sins were laid upon him, and and his body was broken. We thank you for that gift. Lord, we pray for each one of us. May we repent of our sins. May we look to Jesus for salvation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given, he th- he gave, and given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Scott, if you would just offer a prayer of thanks before we partake in the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. We worship and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, who took your wrath, the punishment that we deserve for it, and shed it in his blood. Praise you and thank you, Lord, for saving us. In the same passage, it says in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We read in the Gospels that after they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they went out from there. They sang a hymn before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as the men come forward by with the baskets and as the praise team leads us in the final song, you would stand.